Good morning, everybody. Now, this is not actually a very good morning for me because uh, <coughs> nothing worse than going through maladies and illnesses and everything else. But you do need to have a little bit of background uh, so that you can help me out this morning. The COVID shot uh, I managed to get this week, which was great, because after two minor heart surgeries in the last few months, I hit the highly vulnerable list and wanted to have a shot, which is fine, and I highly commend it. So no question marks at all. But I do have a body stuffed full of chemicals. And uh, I suppose it's fairly inevitable that you can, having had sepsis, that you, this can backfire on you. And it's backfired on me. So I've been in a pretty grotty state, uh, as the British would put it in the last three or four days, culminating in last night, which was awful. And you may say, well, why have you bothered to come and speak today? Because uh, I don't want Michael to have to do it. Because we're on Pergamon. And Pergamon may not mean much to you, but it's actually a, a critical one of the seven cities to look at. And it has all kinds of meanings for Wilmington and for the US today. And I don't want to land Michael with the flack that comes from doing it. I'd much rather uh, address that from my background. I can tell you in all honesty that the notes for this were written 10 years ago. So it's not tailored for you in the aftermath of, of recent events, in the slightest. And also, there is so much that we can actually learn from it that it becomes very, very important. But I do know that I'm in no fit condition to preach. So if I miss it or mess it, will you just tell me? I'm not going to be offended in the slightest but it's a bit like talking through a fog. Um, which for those of you who've got any medical background will know that sepsis does exactly that. And I am preaching through fog. Um, whatever was in that vaccine reacted with what's going into me anyway. And uh, would I hesitate about doing it again? Not for a second. But I'm just telling you that you are the unfortunate recipients, and I apologize. So if you get any problems, Pete, you're on duty. My apologies. Um, one other thing to say when we're looking at this is normally um, some people take notes. Normally it is a minority. But if you're taking notes today, I want to tell you what notes to take. Is that okay? Because when we're talking about Pergamon, we're basically talking about being witnesses. And so you've got four points for your notes. 
Point number one is a witness to faith. Point number two is a witness to truth. Point number three is a witness beyond belief. And point number four is a witness to life. That then means that you can attach whatever is said in this where you think it's particularly relevant. So a witness to faith, a witness to truth, a witness beyond belief, and a witness to life. Let's pray. Father, lead us. We ask that you will guide us, direct us, and speak to us. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamon. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you've remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I'll come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I'll give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Now, a witness to faith. When you want to go to uh, Pergamum, you've got to go, and you're going from Smyrna, it's 55 miles north. It's 80 miles north of Ephesus. When you're driving up on the right and on the left, it's a fairly normal rocky terrain for that part of Turkey. And as you go up the hill, which lasts forever and ever and ever, and you finally get up to the city of Bergama, you're still not in Pergamon. Bergama looks very ordinary, very run down, and you've got to get through it and get out the other side. And when you get out the other side of Bergama and look up the hill, you can just about see Trajan's temple. That huge hill is where Pergamon was. Pergamon in those days was the capital city. It was the greatest city in Asia. And since 282 BC, it had had this massive position of influence. So of all the seven cities, this is the notable one. But as you look up the hill and see Trajan's temple at the top, you are only seeing part of Pergamon. Pergamon basically exists on three levels. And if you're going to talk about a city of faith, it's got three levels of faith to it. If you take the middle 
layer, which is where the, the city of Pergamum was. The middle layer had the altar of Zeus, who, of course, was the king of the Greek gods. And Zeus's temple was there, and at the heart of the temple was the altar. You may say, well, we'd love to go and see it. Well, you might. But if you want to see it, you'd need to go to Germany. We say, well, hang on, you just said Pergamum was in Turkey. Turkey, yes, it is. But you see, the Germans stole the altar. And if you want to see it, it's in Berlin. Now, I know you're looking skeptical, but I speak truth. It's not there anymore. The Germans dismantled it stone by stone, rebuilt it in Berlin, in the museum there. And it's just not in Pergamum anymore. Uh, you can see where it once was, but that's the best you can do. When it was originally erected in the 3rd century BC, they used to use it 24-7. So there were non-stop sacrifices, animal or human, taking place on the altar to Zeus. And that was one level of faith. The second level of faith is right up the top. That's Trajan's Temple. Now, I know that you are real devotees of all things historical. So let me just do a quick overview. Trajan was the Roman emperor around the year 110. The temple was created about 114 AD. It's beautiful. But it is right up the top. And if you want to walk... Well, you haven't got to walk to Berlin, but you've still got a fair walk because it's almost vertical. So the easiest way to get to see Trajan's Temple is to go up in the chairlift, which is cheating, but it's a lot easier. So you go up in the chairlift and you've got this fantastic view of the Caicos Valley and you can see everything in the distance. Right at the top there is Trajan's Temple in all its beauty. Why is Trajan's temple so important? Well, firstly, you've got to remember that Pergamum was the capital. And that Pergamum has some really strong connections. It's got strong connections to traditional faith, as the temple of Zeus, but also it's got strong connections to established faith. And what you find in Pergamon is that religion and politics came together. A heady mix and a dangerous mix. What they did was they took emperor worship to a different level. The first emperor to be worshipped in Pergamon was Augustus. And he was the Roman emperor when Jesus walked in Israel. The second one was Trajan, the one who's commemorated with the temple up on the hill. The third one was Septimius Severus, 
who comes onto the scene 150 years later. So you've got three doses of emperor worship. Some of you will remember that I taught you a couple of weeks ago how to, to do emperor worship. It's very simple. You take a pinch of incense and you throw it into the flame. Why is that important information? Well, it's important information because I want you to know how intelligent I am and that I've done the hard work of this. <laughs> now, it's important information because it tells you that it doesn't take much to worship the emperor. In other words, you can be a thoroughgoing Christian and an emperor worshipper. You've only got to take a, a pinch of incense, just the size of a fingernail, throw it in the flame. No one's going to know. No one's going to see. No one's going to be interested. Everybody else is doing it anyway. And that was emperor worship. And it was foundational in the Roman Empire. Because you could worship all kinds of gods that you wanted. If you were Greek, you had a pantheon of gods. You had lots and lots of them. The one you had to have was the emperor. Because if you didn't worship a particular god, that's just atheism at worst. Denial of a god. But if you didn't worship the emperor, that's not atheism, that's treason. And that was dangerous to do. So if you're a Christian in Pergamon, what did you do? You took your pinch of incense and when no one was watching. Emperor worship was foundational to the Roman Empire. And it was foundational to Pergamon. And so the temple to Trajan was set up to further commit the citizenry of Pergamon to the worship of the emperor and to the worship of Rome. Pergamon itself was given by the then uh, king of Pergamon, Attalus III, he gave the city to Rome in 133 BC. So it's really significant, this whole connection with emperor worship. And that's the second form of worship, of faith that went on there. The third kind of worship was basically healing faith. Uh, how many people here like snakes? Okay, how many people here don't like snakes? Right. So we're going to go into a little slithery, crawly session right now. You see, the worship of the snake was also fundamental to Pergamon because it was the worship of the Greek god Asclepius. And the worship of the Greek god Asclepius is something that you would see and you'll find lots of people who worship Asclepius today, particularly lots in Wilmington. They wear a little badge and a pendant around their neck. And on it, you've got a snake wrapped around a pole. And then you've got another snake wrapped around a pole. And the two snakes come heads together. 
and you say, oh, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Stuff it. That's nothing to do with Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness. There's no biblical reference that tells you it was two serpents. That's not Moses, that's Asclepius. It may be over 2,000 years old, but it's still Asclepius. That was his symbol, it still is today. Its medical connection is the connection to Asclepius, and we'll get there in just a second. Moses raising up the serpent in the wilderness is something very different. And if that's what you're commemorating in your little pendant, you've only got one snake. But if you've got two, you're worshipping Asclepius. He was the god of healing. And he had a way of doing it. Hey, I wish I'd got you there. Because I could take you and show you. Because what happens is, on that middle level, where the temple of Zeus was, is the temple of Asclepius. But it's not on that middle level. It's actually on a third level. It's underground. Because what happened was they dug down and they created lots of little chambers. And in those little chambers, they made beds. And if you were sick, then you were laid on one of the beds at night. And the, you'd got a door going into your bedroom, but you'd also got a little hatchway. And the priest of Asclepius during the night would take the tame snakes and take the snakes and push them through the hatch. I promise. I, I am not speaking untruth. It's absolutely what they did. They stuck the snakes in your room and shut the hatch. So the snakes, because you were laid on your bed naked, the snakes were allowed to crawl all night and would come crawling over you if you were really lucky. And why that was so lucky for you was these snakes were dedicated to Asclepius. So if a snake crawled over your naked body, it brought healing. And in the morning, you would be healed. The looks of skepticism on your faces are alarming. I am a pastor. I don't tell lies. That's absolutely true. That was the worship of Asclepius. That's exactly what they did, and that was medicine in those days. Like it or not. Now, I know that around the year 400 BC, Galen comes along, and I know that medical science was created, and I know that things happened to change that. But originally, medicine was a theological weapon, not a scientific one, and I just told you how it was done. And you can still see those chambers. You can still see those beds. We can't show you the snakes, but we can show you everything else. So why is that so important? I'll tell you later. Not long. Just stay with that thought for a moment. Healing faith. And there's one other kind of faith. And that was 
faith in Jesus. Because what happened in Pergamum was they started to find people who believed in Jesus. And one of the very first was a man named Antipas. And I'll tell you more about Antipas as well later. So a witness to faith. All the story of Pergamon. Secondly, a witness to truth. Well, when we're talking about a witness to truth, we're talking about a time in those days when truth was varied. There were lots of truths. Nowadays, we would like to insist that there is the truth. And by Jesus, John 14 reveals himself in, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But back in the days we're talking about now in Pergamum, there were lots of different truths. Just like in our postmodern world, there is lots of truth. So Steve has Steve's truth. And he'll proclaim his truth. And you can have his truth or not have his truth. You choose. Or you can have Abby's truth. It's not the same as Steve's truth. They may, be, they may have a relationship through marriage, but their truths will differ from their experience. This is our postmodern world. There is no such thing as absolute truth, except the absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. And the reality is that we're living in a world where truth has been relativized. We all have truth for ourselves. And the argument is you can't inflict your truth on anyone else. That was the view in Pergamon. The only problem is that for the Christian, there is the truth. And it's not an abstraction. It's not a series of words. The truth has a name. And his name is Jesus. But it's a totally different kind of concept to what existed there in those days. And the truth was a person, a personality, who we could come to know. But for the inhabitants of Pergamon, truth was very different. Let me tell you about when I first went to Pergamon. I was with my friend Hein. Uh, who is South African. And we were doing a scouting trip around the seven churches. And we got to Pergamon. And the problem with Pergamon is that there is no such thing as the truth. Everybody has their truth. And so we started looking around Pergamon. Now, what's Pergamon famous for? This isn't being very helpful. My, Michael. Michael is nursing a piece of pergamon. Paper. Paper. So what's the connection with, between pergamon and paper? Library. Oh, very, very good. My goodness gracious. Do you want to come and take the rest of this? That was great. That was really, really good. Yeah, the library. The library in Pergamum was so famous 
there was one library, of course, that was more famous than the one in Pergamum, which was the library in Alexandria. And what happened, basically, was that they were trying to do... You know, nowadays, we have transfers of our sports stars. In those days, they had transfers of librarians. No, I'm not lying to you. It's absolutely true. They, they arranged a transfer between Alexandria and Pergamon, and the transfer was of the librarian. And Aristophanes was being transferred. But King Ptolemy... Now, Egypt had about 30 King Ptolemies, so I'm, I'm not going to bore you with which one, if I could... <laughs> even remember. But it was a, a transfer that King Ptolemy got in the way of. The way he got in the way of it was he imprisoned Aristophanes and he banned all export from Egypt of papyrus. Papyrus were the reed out of which papyrus, the paper, was made. That left Pergamum in a very sticky position. They had no means of using paper. So they created something out of the hides of animals, which they called... Not Pergamite, although you might be getting near. Parchment. That's absolutely right. They created parchment. And they built up in the library there, 200,000 scrolls of parchment to replace the papyrus and to try to facilitate the acquisition of a good librarian and everything else. Now we'll find how good your history really is. Who was the most famous woman? given a hundred years either way of those days in that part of the world. Pun? Cleopatra. Cleopatra, dead right, yeah. Cleopatra. First husband was Julius Caesar. Second husband, Mark Antony. What was Mark Antony's gift to Cleopatra on her wedding day? The library, 200,000 scrolls of parchment. I don't know if you would be overwhelmed by that as a wedding gift, but that's what Mark Antony gave to Cleopatra from the library in Pergamon. And so Pergamon, so famous for the parchment and the design of parchment. And what happens as parchment is, is developed there, is, of course, Christianity is about revealed truth. And the great danger is Christianity is about this. Christianity is not about this. Sorry, guys. You can have Christianity without the Bible. Now, it's harder and it's not as good Because the Bible is your test book, not your textbook. 
Bible is what you test everything against and know what's true and what's not true. But you can have Christianity without the Bible. What can't you have Christianity without? Jesus. Because supremely, Jesus is the word, not the Bible. The Bible is the checkbook. It's the thing we check against. It's not the origin of Christianity. It's what you test it by. Okay? You're still there. Am I sound enough? Is that all right? Good. Because what happens in this context is that you've got the witness to the truth. And the truth about Christianity is Jesus. The witness to the truth, the written word, gives you a test book to put it against. But the third thing is that the witness goes beyond belief. <coughs> so I said that in our postmodern world, everybody's got their own beliefs and their own truths. What makes Christianity different? That it's the way, the truth, the life. It's the one and only. That's what gets everyone's, up everyone's nostrils. That Christianity claims to be unique. And it is. You see, Christianity is different from every other faith in one particular way. Christianity isn't a religion. Every other faith is. If Christianity is not a religion, Michael, what is it? How often have I told this to you? It's a relationship. And it's really important to get that. Christianity is not a religion about God. It's a relationship with him. So whereas religion may be useful in some ways, Christianity is certainly way more than a religion. It's not just a set of beliefs about God. It's a relationship with him. That's what makes Christianity superior to every other faith. Because it doesn't offer you a set of different principles, ideas, or projects. It offers you instead a relationship with the God that everyone else talks about. Christianity introduces you to. And that's the wonderful thing about my Jesus. He's the one who brings God to you, not just the one who tells you about God. And I love the way that what you have here is a witness to the truth that therefore goes beyond belief. It's not a matter of what you believe in. It's a matter of who you know. I have too many friends, so does Ruth, who've spent a fair chunk of their lives locked up in the Evan prison in Turkey. And you can lock a Christian up. You can lock a Christian up from contact with other Christians. You can keep the Bible from Christians. You can do lots of things to a Christian, but you can't stop the relationship. So their faith grows even when you take everything else away. The fourth thing about being a witness is that being a witness comes down to the one you know and can therefore share with others, and what that sharing with others really means. 
In Pergamum, they worshipped four gods primarily, Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, and Asclepius. Of course, then Christianity comes along with the one true God and offers them something totally different, a relationship with a God who is there. And what makes that so incredible is that that relationship is therefore all-consuming and all-demanding. Most of you will have heard of George Whitfield, who in the 18th century was the Prince of Preachers. He spent so much of his life in England or in New England. And at one point, Whitfield was in New England preaching Jesus. And he arrived in a city and they just begged him to preach. And so he got up and preached. But he was exhausted when he started. By the time he finished, he was done. And he got back to the home of a friend where he was due to stay the night. And there was a huge crowd of people ready to greet him and to hear him preach. And so he got up yet again and preached Jesus once more. At five in the morning when they went to wake him up, he was dead. Because he lived his life preaching Jesus. And he came to his death preaching Jesus. It's all about preaching Jesus. I've had the privilege of working with Billy Graham for a long time when Bill was alive. And I'll never forget one conference where Billy introduced a friend of his who was going to preach. And this was an African-American and I want you to understand that there's not a racist bone operating in my body. So if you think this is meant to put down the African-American, it is not. It is just that African-Americans do things differently sometimes. One of the things they really do differently is preach. And they know how to preach, well and truly. And Billy introduced this guy and he stood up to preach, and he only used two words. And he preached for the next 30 minutes, just using those two words. And when he had to finish, he finished with the same two words he'd been preaching for the rest of the half hour. And he summoned up every ounce of breath in his body, and he simply yelled at the top of his voice when it's all said and done. Preach Jesus! And it's a, a wonderful expression. Just preach Jesus. While you live, preach Jesus. When you come to die, preach Jesus. Let your life live Jesus. Let everything you say and do reveal Jesus. Just let Jesus be seen in you and through you. You know, we, we read in the early church, people took note that these early disciples had been with Jesus because they lived Jesus. They spoke of Jesus. 
They loved Jesus. And there was a problem. Now, I, I know I'm going to get into hot water with this, and I'm really sorry, but we've, we've just got to get it clear. You're not going to have to explain when you get to glory why you voted Democrat. And you're not going to have to explain when you get to glory why you voted Republican. Because frankly, that's between you and Jesus and that's absolutely fine. You are going to have to explain whether you preached Jesus, whether you lived Jesus, whether you loved Jesus, whether Jesus was the sum total of everything that you thought about and loved and lived with and lived for. That the reality is that we need a world that is more consumed with Jesus than with anything else. Now, do I believe that an interest in politics is significant or appropriate for a Christian? Yes, I believe that we should pray very hard for the president. I feel that we should pray very hard for our past president. I believe that we should be really concerned for our governor and for those around us. And I don't believe that that should come out of being partisan or patriotic. I believe that that should simply come out of being obedient to the call that comes in, in Scripture to be concerned about those in authority over us. What I believe is far more important is that we pray that they might know Jesus that they might love Jesus, that they might serve Jesus, that they might be one day with Jesus. One day I was dragged in to see the Prime Minister of Britain. Part of my job. I headed the evangelical churches and John Major, who had succeeded Margaret Thatcher as the British Prime Minister, had got a question. He wanted an answer. He talked to one of his cabinet who said, well, you better ask Clive, hadn't you? So I got dragged in and the question from the Prime Minister was this. Why is it that as of last week, more than 50%, more than 50% of Christians in this country, those who would call themselves Christians are evangelical Christians. Why is it that so many people, because we used to have 1.8% of the population evangelical Christians, why is it that now over 50% of those who would call themselves Christians are evangelicals? What's made the difference? Well, you're left with a choice there. You can either sort of hide your uh, light under a bushel or you can let him have it with both barrels, which is what I did. I said, people have got enough doubts of their own. They're looking for someone to believe in. I want to share that they've found in Jesus someone who they don't just have to believe in with their head. They can believe in with their heart. They can surrender their lives to and discover in a living, real relationship. And that that Jesus wants to come to the lives of each of us 
and take up residence and rule as Lord and King within us. I enjoyed that moment. I mean, if the Prime Minister asks for it, you can give it to him, can't you? And no one can say that that's unreasonable. What happens in Pergamum is very similar. There's a little Greek word that crops up an awful lot. It is the word pistuo. You may not know what pistuo means. Pistuo means believe. But as with the Greek for love, there's lots of different degrees of pistuo, as there are lots of different degrees of eros and agape. And talking about Christianity, we are not told to pistuo in Jesus. Because pistuo means a belief that comes from here. It means a head belief. It means an acknowledgement of something as rational, believable truth. When scripture talks about believing for a Christian, it means a faith worth living for and dying for. It means a faith that involves surrender. It means a faith that involves giving yourself totally and completely to someone. It means a faith that goes out on a limb and takes the great risk of life and trust someone with every fibre of your being. That's what my Jesus requires. That's what makes Christianity unique. It offers a relationship, yes, but only to those prepared to make a surrender. A surrender of everything you have and are into the arms of a king who will never fail to give you everything you need, will always provide for you what is required. You may say, ah, yes, I've been told on television that God will give me all that I need in terms of health and wealth and everything else. No, 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 no. No, no, no. It doesn't mean that God's going to give you what you want. It means that God's going to give you what you need. He's not going to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. It means that he's going to be with you in every trial, every struggle and every problem. That's my Jesus. That's what he's up to. That's what he's creating. That's what he was offering in Pergamon. A faith that doesn't require every other faith added onto it. A faith that requires a surrender of your heart and life to the one who alone is the one true God. And a faith that is not just something you believe in academically, but you trust him with all your heart and life. And therefore it's not a faith that can be measured by your politics. It's not a faith that can be measured by your activities. It's not a faith that can be measured by your legal obedience. It's a faith that's measured by your devotion to him. That's why I'm sorry, can I use you as an illustration for a minute? Is that okay? You. Yeah, you can stay there. I'm just going to be rude. Um, <laughs> you see, it's not that God takes the very best he's got and makes preachers much more likely to make them doctors. Because God's after full-time Christian 
physicians, full-time Christian factory workers, full-time Christian students, full-time Christian homemakers, full-time Christian retirees. God is after a people of every shape and size, color and disposition who are so totally and completely surrendered to Jesus that everything they say and do, they do because they know him, love him, and are devoted to him. And that's the message that had to get through to Pergamon. The problem for the church in Pergamon was that it was full of people who loved compromise. And so they were told that they were guilty of the sin of Balaam. By this time, you must be thinking of, oh, I still get into trouble with this one. I, I won't hear, I know. But uh, I used to love preaching on Balaam's ass in Connecticut because that's the English. I'm told it means different things here. <laughs> but I, I used to, to love trying to draw the distinction. You see, the story of Balaam is the story of somebody who went and told Moab that they could have one God with many others. Went and told Balak, the king of Moab, that he needed God and everything else. And Balaam's sin was basically that of compromise. It was reductionism. It was reducing everything. And that was the sin of Pergamon. It reduced everything to what everybody was happy to live up to. And yet really what God is after is us rising up, getting up to the highest standard, surrendering everything to him, devoting everything to him, letting everything belong to him. My kids would tell you, mum and dad always had a family verse that they gave us. I've never heard of another family who've had this verse. Ours was John chapter 2, verse 5. And we taught it to the kids from knee-high to a grasshopper. It's Mary at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee. Do whatever he tells you. Not bad life verse, that one. Do whatever he tells you. Do what he wants you to do. Be what he wants you to be. He wants you to be a, a Christian physician? Be one. He wants you to be a Christian homemaker? Be one. Just do whatever you do in love and passionate surrender to the one who comes to do that in you and through you. What happened to Antipas? There in Pergamum, well, we don't know. Tertullian, the church historian, records that he was stuck uh, either in a skillet or a great statue made of brass, and they turned the heat up until he was roasted alive. So you had roast Antipas until he was dead. There were four major martyrs in Pergamum in those early years because people understood that Christianity is about a surrender of everything we have and are to Jesus. And that's what being a witness means. Now, Who's done some Greek? Thank you. Okay, nice easy question for you. 
You might remember this. You might not. Don't worry if you don't. What's the Greek for witness? Okay, well, I'll give you a clue. I just told you. Because it starts with an M. Yeah? It's martyrs, which is the Greek for martyr. My friend Graham Kendrick had a lovely song that he used to sing called I'd Like to Be a Martyr. If it didn't hurt too much. But I know I couldn't make it if I tried. I'd like to be a Christian if it didn't cost too much. But I know I'd want my ego to survive. Don't be sad. Don't be sad. That was the message to Pergamon. Don't compromise. Balaam went and taught Moab that basically it doesn't matter who you marry. Basically, it doesn't matter what you do. You just add God on. Pergamon was taught, you give everything to Jesus. Leave nothing back. And then it'll all work together for good. That was the message of Pergamon. Oh, and there was a result. You got a white stone. What was the white stone? The white stone is what I'd like one day off you. When it's done and time has gone, what the white stone meant was it's what they gave a gladiator when he had fought and fought and fought in the arena and done so well that they retired him with honour. Didn't let him fight till his death, but they retired him with a white stone, which basically said, you're done, you did it, you won. God bless you.